Welcome to Biodiversity Speaks. I'm Dr. Helena Jolly, scientist who studies human-nature relations and coexistences in indigenous landscapes, and your host today at yet another amazing episode of Biodiversity Speaks. Today, we have a conservation practitioner and academician. He has 26 years of experience in parks interpretation, education, public engagement, and land management in the eastern slopes of Canadian Rockies. He led development of the Alberta Parks Inclusion Plan, managed two of Canada's largest urban provincial parks, Fish Creek and Glenbow Ranch Provincial Parks. Please welcome Dr. Don Carthus Denhoid, a research associate at the University of British Columbia, where he leads the Canadian Parks Protected and Conserved Areas Leadership Collective, a pan-Canadian parks and protected area leadership and research network funded by the Canadian Parks Council and Parks Canada, delivered in collaboration with Mount Royal University, Institute for Environmental Sustainability, York University, Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change, Royal Roads University, and University of Moncton. Hello, Don. Welcome to Biodiversity Speaks. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you for taking time to join. Pleasure to be here. So let me begin by saying what an incredible career you have, Don. I haven't had any speaker who have had some wonderful experience working in environmental education and interpretation. Please tell us more about like how you came into this career and you know what led you here. Also on the importance of maybe effective communication and interpretation in promoting conservation and sustainability. So I've got, I've got like two questions for you. Yeah, that's great. And they're, they're both connected because I came to this work through communication. Uh, my background was in communications and persuasion and working with people to effectively get across ideas. And I found myself working in parks and protected areas and really enjoyed communicating in that space. For most of my career, I'd introduce myself as a singing, dancing beaver <laughs> because that's the kind of work I did was interpretation through theater, through programming and environmental education. But as that program experience evolved, I started to really realize how important communication was for conservation because the relationships between people and nature were so important for effective conservation. So doing interpretive programs and realizing that that was a conversation with people on behalf of a landscape or on behalf of an animal or species. We'd often get told by our supervisors at the end of an interpretive program, it's great if people are clapping for you, but they should also be clapping for the bat that you're talking about or the bear that you're talking about or the lichen that you're talking about. So just this real opportunity to use communication to make sure that people could hear and celebrate the stories of biodiversity all around. So it was, a, it was kind of a natural path from communication to conservation. Oh, interesting. So you're talking about so many animals like the beavers and the bats and lichens. Can you share like maybe an example of like how it looks like? Sure. So the programs that really where I learned so much were in Kananaskis country. It's in the Alberta Park System. And back in the 70s, the interpreters created a, a new style for Canada where they'd say instead of just talking about the antler of a deer, why don't we put them on our heads and, and perform? And it was initially kind of referred to as Broadway in the Bushes. Oh, So it was musical theater about the natural world. And over the, the decades, it evolved to quite a refined program of educating through the arts. And, and I've only recently started to see how many diverse approaches there are to arts-based conservation education. And it's nice to feel like I was part of a version of that where it was really about entertaining people, celebrating those stories, and and sort of showing concepts in a way that use art as a gateway for people who might not pick up a scientific article. They might not attend a conference or go to a, a speaker on bats and their life cycles, but they bring their kids down to an amphitheater to hear a program, to have fun, and then they leave with that appreciation for a part of our natural world. Wow. That, that is indeed very interesting, Don. And also your work has been like mostly dealing with transforming park education, which, which for me is very intriguing. In your publication, specifically the one talking about transforming park education as transformed park educator, you discuss the transformation of park education. 
Could you explain maybe some of the factors behind this transformation and maybe even bring some examples of how innovative approaches to park education that you find particularly inspiring? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. And you mentioned the inclusion plan that I was involved in, and that came out of my graduate work, looking at how people with different abilities could connect with parks and outdoor recreation and be a part of those systems, not just as a user, but hopefully work as researchers, work as decision makers, and be a part of uh, biodiversity work themselves. That came out of those interpretation programs where I started to notice the programs I was at were mostly people like me, able-bodied, middle-class, people who were able to afford to go camping. And it made me question, are these programs reaching everybody or are they reinforcing some privileges in who can access nature and nature-based experiences? And I was funded to do research into that question to see what are the systemic barriers to getting people into nature with different abilities? How can that education and interpretive programming reach people who have a different experience? And that's where the transformative piece came in, is it became quite clear that the work we were doing trying to connect people with nature was incomplete because we were excluding people. Absolutely. And those additional perspectives, people with different ways of experiencing the world, only enriched our understanding of biodiversity. And really, for me personally, made me appreciate that social diversity and biodiversity were inseparable that we had to have that variety of ways of experiencing the world to truly understand the value of diversity and to get ideas that were different, experiences that were different. I talk about a, a significant moment I'll never forget of doing a program in a school about grizzly bears and showing a grizzly bear skull to a group of students. And I'd initially been asked not to go to one classroom because the school thought they wouldn't get anything out of it. It was the special educations back then. But I went anyways because I had time and was holding this grizzly bear skull out to talk about the different features on it and, and the, the structure of the skull and the teeth. And two young autistic boys came up. They were twins. And I'll never forget, they looked at me and they looked at the skull and then they licked it. No other student in Alberta knew what a grizzly bear skull tasted like. And neither did I. And in fact, I went home that night and I licked the skull myself. <laughs> and that's just to me a, a really good example of I have now been able to have a more enriched experience and understanding because their perspective offered something I never would have thought, I never would have done. And, and that became kind of a, a way to look at our interpretive programs and our outdoor ed programs and say, well, can we create an experience that doesn't just change people's understanding of the natural world, but actually broadens their experience, mm -hmm. helps them see the natural world as a place for inclusion, a place to build equity among others, to have uh, people with different abilities leading a program, even if they're the person in the adaptive technology. Uh, an example of a, a program we ran called the Access Challenge, where we bring people into nature on adaptive equipment, people with different abilities. And I'll, I'll never forget Cecile, she needed to use an adaptive wheelchair and it was pulled by these pretty fit people up to the Continental Divide. Mm -hmm. So a mountain hike, she's riding in this one-wheeled wheelchair, and these guides wanted to get her up there. And at one point, she said, stop, I brought a flower book. I want to look at the flowers here. And so she ended up guiding these people who they initially thought they were there to go for a hike. You know, like, oh, we've got to get her to this viewpoint. That's what she must want. And she sort of slowed them down and said, no, I want to look at the flowers in an alpine. So I've never been there. And she turned the tide on that experience and they came down thrilled that they had learned about alpine buttercups and things mm -hmm. like that. Like they, they got a new appreciation for a landscape that they may have just blitzed through to get the view. She slowed them down and, and created a, a new story and a new experience between nature and people. And, and those inclusion programs became the kinds of transformative learning programs that I really like to foster because it was so interesting and so powerful to see people come together, share their perspectives, somebody who was blind explaining how a, a place sounded or felt, then wow. that that was different to somebody who, who had their vision, somebody who couldn't walk or couldn't talk communicating. That just becomes such a, again, that, that importance of social diversity and how complementary it was to biodiversity. And it just became such an essential piece to say we, we really benefit if 
everybody can feel integrated in these spaces, feel involved. As another example, we had the privilege of working with Outward Bound and the Royal Canadian Legion for a program where they would take military veterans with operational stress disorders out into the wilderness for these programs to help them reintegrate and, and cope with some of their challenges getting back to civilian life. And at the end of their program, they would do an adaptive program, an adaptive trip where they take somebody on adaptive trail rider up on a hike and help somebody with a disability get into nature. And the interesting part of it is they would think they were there to help the person with a disability. And the person with a disability would generally be the one teaching them about how important interdependence was, how important it was to work together and how important that natural environment was for everybody to feel included in, in, in a natural space. So a few examples of programs, but it's been, it's been really remarkable to see the work being done now all across Canada. Other agencies uh, have, have tremendous leaders who are taking inclusion and saying, it's not just about paving a trail. It's about it's creating really a space where people can experience nature the way they want to and then become leaders themselves, you know, so it's not just on one side of the counter, it's on both sides. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, this is so interesting, Don, because I live very close to Pacific Spirit Park. And now I understand that, you know, having access doesn't mean just proximity, but, you know, you need other things to facilitate for people with different abilities to actually access the way they want, right? The, mm -hmm. they, which they can find it beneficial. It's not like defined by people with access no accessibility issue defining like how people everybody should use the space right and it's it's so relevant especially for parks and how people see those parks and perceive them that is that's really that's really interesting i was recently reading about this article that came in which mentioned that i think it was in greece or somewhere in europe that they made this little pathway for people in wheelchair to access ocean like to go into the water and feel it so it's incredible, right? Like you don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis when people or managers make these decisions of, oh, there's a beach, everybody can access it. But, you know, that the reality is not everybody cannot access in the same way. I guess the same goes with the parks, right? That's right. And and even as you're talking, what I started thinking about, and it's, it's that the parks themselves are adaptive technology. Nature doesn't have a building code. And people need to learn how to be on the land. And not everybody has the ability to be on the land without some sort of supports. So when you create a system of trails, signage, public safety, conservation officers to make you feel safe, campgrounds that have the things you need, the facilities mm -hmm. to feel like you can spend time in nature, and then the education programs, the interpretive programs, it, it's an, an adaptation that is there so that people who don't have those skills or abilities, regardless of whether they can walk or not, they can then connect with nature and start that relationship with biodiversity that's so crucial and, and really help people experience the sense that they are a part of the natural world. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, this is this is great, Adon. Thank you so much. That's such a insightful things you mentioned. And you know, as somebody who's now started working with Parks Canada and everything, this is really interesting to see, you know, your work. Thank you so much for sharing this. So my other question, Dawn, is regarding your expertise or your experience being in park management and conservation, right? As an expert in park management and conservation, what do you see our biggest challenges facing by protected areas in Canada today? Like how can like evidence-based decision-making contribute to addressing these some of these challenges? That's a really great question. And I thought about it that I think actually the evidence-based decision-making turns those challenges into opportunities. And if we can understand what's happening and how those parks and protected areas can contribute to halting biodiversity loss and supporting restoration or creating experiences where people can connect with nature as parks do, using evidence to figure out the best ways to do that, to measure the impact of that, to find out if a place isn't big enough or isn't developed in a way that works effectively that's that's how we address those challenges. But there are a lot of challenges. There's almost an overwhelming amount of conservation work being done, trying to achieve the conservation targets of 30 by 30 with a conservation workforce that's relatively small. Many agencies are struggling to hire people. It's it's a challenging career to, to recruit people into. It's often remote. It 
often doesn't compete with the wages of the private sector, often has specialized skills people need. So there is a real challenge with workforce sustainability, as well as diversity in those workforces. Mm -hmm. There's still an overwhelming homogenous workforce in conservation. That's uh, true. Eco-Canada has done research and, and the conservation workforce in Canada is quite white and quite male. So there needs to be work to diversify that, to bring in that social diversity and those new perspectives and to get people to stay mm-hmm. so they don't feel like their work is so daunting, so overwhelming that they, that they can't cope. So I think that's, that's a really kind of overarching challenge. And then there's also assets that have to be maintained in the face of climate change, parks that are changing because of climate change, storms that are suddenly taking your work and side railing it because you have to rebuild a series of adaptations and trails and facilities, as well as just the social context of parks and protected areas. We saw during the pandemic how many people wanted to get out into nature, but we're also really, it was shocking how many people didn't seem to have the stewardship ethics that we thought they did. Mm-hmm. Last year at our e-summit for the the Sipsal Research Network, we held, held a design workshop that started from the question of, you know, during the pandemic, there was a massive amount of garbage and problems in parks, and we couldn't blame it on tourists because the only people allowed there were Canadians. Nobody could travel. Absolutely. And it was a real eye-opener for a lot of park agencies. Wow, we took for granted that that the people here knew what to do. And that's our fault for taking that for granted. And so we're really trying to think of, as a system, how do we work to increase that stewardship to make sure people take care of these places, manage the garbage, and also turn to reputable places to learn how to recreate. There's a lot of social media expertise. You know, I hiked this trail, now you can too if you do this. And meetups that might be people who don't have the skills really required to be safe and and respectful on the landscape. So that's another challenge is just working in this, this social media world where the information's not necessarily compatible with what the landscape needs. So lots of little complicated things going on. But I, as I said back to the beginning, if we can gather evidence about what's happening, you know, if we can understand how people make decisions about recreation, if we can understand where they learn how to value biodiversity, how to take care of nature, how to make sure their impact is positive. If we can come up with that sort of evidence to balance the evidence about what's an effective conservation mechanism, you know, how much land does a grizzly bear need? What does that waterway need to be effective? What's the flow supposed to be? And and if we kind of combine that natural science and social science understanding, I think those challenges of conservation become opportunities. They, they show people how they can impact positively and, and they help these sites meet their goals and really turn the tide on biodiversity. No, that, that's, that's really interesting, Don, when you were mentioning about this uh, discussion about the stewardships in specific, right? Like I was listening and one thing that came into my mind was like the role that a lot of indigenous communities play because as we know now and, you know, many, many of the audience who are international audience over here, all of the land of Canada originally belonged to the indigenous people and it ideally should be indigenous land and we do have acknowledgement, but um, they don't have rights and uh, ownership rights or access rights to a lot of the parks, but they play a significant role in stewardship in places that they have um, ownership onto the land. So uh, how do you think this addressing these big challenges that the parks and protected areas in Canada are playing what role do you think like indigenous communities are playing or, you know, have potential to play? That's a very exciting question. It's actually where I'm hoping that I can go with my work and have had the privilege of working with projects like the Conservation Through Reconciliation Partnership, mm-hmm. which is introducing and supporting indigenous-led protected areas. So indigenous protected and conserved areas or IPCAs mm-hmm. across the continent. That model is really crucial for meeting those 30 by 30 goals, the the conservation targets. But more importantly, those IPCAs are such an important model of holistic conservation where it's integrated with culture, integrated with conservation economies, and is something that I think we can really learn from in terms of how people conserve land for the sake of all land instead of just for the the park that's marked on the map. Okay. 
so so I I want to learn from indigenous conservation leaders, and I have the, the fortunate opportunity to work with a number on some projects and and really learn how their experience, how their understanding, how their knowledge complements the work that we're trying to do as biodiversity scientists and social scientists and ecologists and educators. At the same time, I think there's another opportunity, which is the current conventional parks that were created at a time when we weren't talking about reconciliation, we weren't talking about the justice required for Indigenous people in Canada, have an opportunity to decolonize, to integrate Indigenous leadership that's unique. They're not, they're not a land that's got an industrial tenure. They're not a land that's just public lands. Absolutely. They're actually a landscape designed for conservation and connecting people to nature, which is really compatible with what Indigenous leaders are telling us we need to do as people. And, and Dawn, for the audience who probably are not much aware of IPCA, like, can you just briefly mention like, what's IPCA so that they can really connect to the things that you're mentioning? Yeah, so an IPCA is an Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area. So it's, it's an area that has been set aside for management by an Indigenous nation to meet conservation goals as well as other goals of that nation. So like a park, so you think of it as something that's designated to be protected, but it integrates and is, is designed to serve the values and to serve the needs of the community who's traditionally already been stewarding it. So in many ways, it's, it's an artificial mechanism to recognize something Indigenous people already do. Okay. But it's a way for us to work with that conservation in a colonial system. And as I said, to use it as a, a place to learn. The leaders of a lot of the IPCA work in Canada refer to it as beacons of teaching. Oh, Parks nice. are a beacon of teaching for how we as people can reconnect with the natural world, with the land. And, and I really take that to heart in, in my work is can we, can we model that, especially in parks, which, as I said, have a very compatible mandate. And if we can be empathetic and listen, if we're willing to learn, I think we can do some incredible transformative leadership in learning. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, this is, this is really great, especially for a lot of our international audience who are listening and how Canada is taking leadership in terms of integrating local people and Indigenous people in conservation objectives and measures. Yeah. And what's really exciting, I think, on that is it's the Indigenous people of Turtle Island in the land that is now called Canada who are taking that leadership. And it's so heartening to see you know, when, when there's international conferences here that the Indigenous leaders are being recognized for that leadership. I think that's the really incredible accomplishment is saying, yes, we listen. Yes, we need you. We need your help and your guidance. And, and that's, I think, the, the celebration is of the Absolutely. knowledge and leadership. This is, this is really great, Don. And also, like, moving a little bit further on to, like, the public engagement and community involvement, you spoke about, a bit about it with, you know, Indigenous leadership and stewardship in conservation. But in your opinion, like, what are some of the role of public engagement and community involvement that play in management of protected areas? And how can we ensure effective collaboration between park managers and local communities? Sometimes that gets a little bit tricky, I believe. Yeah, it, it's a really good question that, a lot of my work was focused on those relationships with local communities, especially in urban parks, where you're, you're literally in the community. And those relationships were often really contentious. You'd have people complain about what you're doing. You'd have people, you know, do things in compatible ways to spend time in that park. Reflecting back, though, I think what's fascinating is those relationships were often because the person loved the park so much. They just loved it in a different way. And I think what's exciting about public engagement is it, it's really an opportunity again. It's relationships exist. People have relationships with those landscapes. They have feelings about parks. They have, they have thoughts about how you should do things one way or the other. Effective public engagement isn't necessarily about creating those relationships. It's about revealing them mm -hmm. and then finding out what they need to complement each other, to be empathetic about what a community needs, but also encourage the community be, to be empathetic about the goals of that park and the needs of the wildlife, about the biodiversity in it. But there's a pretty strong foundation when you're working in parks next to communities. It's, it's kind of a good news story in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it's not because the land can be 
contentious or it can be expropriated. But in general, I think that that community involvement is what makes a park or protected area effective. Okay. You can have policy, but if people don't follow the policy, they're not going to be an effective protected area. You can have rules and regulations. If people don't follow them, they're not going to be effective. And that comes from the trust that people need to have that you're making good decisions, which gets back to your question about evidence. If we can show them that we're listening to evidence, if we can show them we're hearing their observations and create a relationship between local people, they become allies in parks and protected areas. And... I think as a, a quick example, I've been working over the past few years with the Outdoor Council of Canada as a collaborator. They're working with third-party operators who run programs like tourism programs, guiding mm-hmm. operations in a lot of parks and protected areas in Canada. They're business people. They're very different often in terms of what they need from somebody who works for a government and does permitting and does wildlife management. But we've come to this really amazing place where we realize our our values are very aligned. If parks aren't successful, then they can't do really effective programming. That's true. And if we don't have them helping us educate the public and and being on the landscape, then we don't have as much capacity to deal with. They're often the only guides a visitor might talk to. So there's this really interesting opportunity and in, in working in the space of business, working in the space of, hmm. of operating tourism enterprises, that parks can learn from and work with. And, and suddenly this, like you're saying, public engagement, it's about engaging those, yeah. those guides, those outfitters, those businesses. So yeah, quite a, quite a lot of opportunity, I think, to do more if we can work well with those people. So that's a lot of effective collaboration ways in which we can, right? Absolutely. So the other thing which, Don, I have a lot of questions for you, <laughs> but I'm like trying to like go through my questions and I'm like, which one to pick now? So in terms of like the future of protected areas in Canada, are there like any emerging trends or innovative approaches that you find particularly exciting or like promising? Yeah, I think it's a really exciting time in large part because of that commitment to conserve more land. I think that's really important. How do we just set aside these places? How do we make sure we're we're protecting things, mm-hmm. saving the parts <laughs> so okay. that we can respond to crises? There's so much opportunity for us to learn, to do things well, and to do the right kind of conservation mm-hmm. on Indigenous territories, that's that's definitely exciting and promising. I think within conventional parks and protected areas, there's also some extremely exciting work in private land conservation and people mm-hmm. who want to, or industries who want to take the lead in conserving and, and restoring biodiversity and community-led conservation. So where those communities are actually driving mm-hmm. the work to say, hey, this this is important to us. We want to we want to make this landscape there for our children and our grandchildren. We want clean water. So just that really diverse number of ways conservation is happening right now, that excites me. It's like a diversity of approaches. The other thing that I think is really exciting to me is that time, not just to think about decolonizing parks, but going through a period of reflecting if what we've been doing is right and if there's ways to do things better. So again, just critically looking at approaches to parks and protected areas, saying, what have we missed? Have we overlooked communities? Do we have to do some repair work? Mm-hmm. Do we have to rebuild some relationships and some trust? And and I think it's exciting if we can not be afraid to do that, if we can say, let's, let's ask some hard questions. I think it's where working with academia is great because it's the same thing there. How can, how can the institutions who have been studying parks and protected areas say, have we been doing things that we should be doing better? So there's some real alliances there. And it's what's exciting in my work is working with both academics and park practitioners to say, how do we do better? That is so insightful, Dawn. And it actually links a lot to your article on grizzly bear management in um, Kanaskis Valley, 40 years of figuring it out, where you discuss about the challenges and experiences related to specifically to grizzly bear management. Maybe... It's also a good thing if you can like share some of your insights you've gained during your research and how it has informed the management practices there, linking to like what you just mentioned before. Absolutely. So the Kananaskis Valley is an area in the eastern slopes of the Canadian Rockies that was set aside for conservation in the late 70s. At the time, it actually had a healthy black bear population, but not a huge grizzly bear population. And what we found in the study and talking to people who were involved at the time is creating campgrounds, creating trails, opening up the forest canopy actually brought in grizzly bears 
and pushed out the black bears. So the park itself changed okay. the, the nature of the bears. So these people working in this park and protected area had to learn how to manage grizzly bears. Absolutely. And it's different from black bears. Yeah. yeah, it's a totally different place. And as grizzly bear populations declined, it became species at risk management. Mm-hmm. It became really about looking at conserving this species. And because they didn't expect that to be this place, they had to learn on the ground. They had to observe these bears. They had to figure things out, as we said in the, the title of the paper. There was a significant amount of research done on grizzly bears in the eastern slopes that really helped inform decisions and in some cases reveal where choices were made that maybe weren't the best, like campgrounds put in prime grizzly bear habitat that in hindsight should have been put somewhere else. That grizzly bear research became a real go-to for decisions for the next 20 years. What's interesting is that the continued need for research hasn't necessarily been met, especially in the social sciences to understand human behavior. How do people play into this landscape? How do you impact their behaviors around grizzly bears effectively? And then we also had some companion research done by the the Stony Nakoda First Nation Mm -hmm. on traditional perspectives on grizzly bear management in the Kananaskis country. Oh, interesting. And even though that knowledge was available, it was really challenging for managers and decision makers to use that knowledge because it didn't, it didn't mesh with Western decision-making processes. So there's still a lot of questions, I think, about how do you move forward and, and make decisions that are using different ways of knowing and different knowledge systems. How do you respect what was shared by the Stony Nakoda in this case. But it's over these 40 years of figuring things out, it's still a success story. It's it's a place where there's a growing population of grizzly bears within an hour of a city of over a million people. Oh my God. They still have, you know, these bears are are behaving well around people. In some form of coexistence, I believe. Yeah, there's an active human wildlife management program. So Mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of training of the bears, but there's also a tremendous amount of training people. Back to those education programs, a lot of them were teaching people how to be safe around bears. There's an innovative volunteer program called a wildlife ambassador program that's been around for about 10 years where members of the public are trained to deliver interpretive messages on the trail to make sure people have their dogs on leash and put their coolers away and and are respectful of it being bears territory. So it's a really interesting place where this interdisciplinary way of managing a landscape is happening. It's just that the evidence isn't necessarily catching up or it's it's valued as evidence, but it's not used yet. Okay. So it's it's a great place to be in, and I'm really hopeful that they'll continue to study the way those decisions are made, especially from that interdisciplinary lens and, and with the Indigenous knowledge added to it. That, that's really interesting. And yeah, I've never thought of like grizzly bear management from that lens. So it's really interesting, Don. And the other thing which I wanted to talk about was when I was briefly reading about some of the reports and, you know, projects that you've been doing, there's a mentioning of the Stony Bison Report, which focuses on enhancing the reintroduction of plains bison in Banff National Park. And Banff National Park is very popular and everybody knows about it, right? And this reintroduction discussion has been going on for so many years and there are people who support it and people who are against it. But what were some of your key recommendations in that report and what potential impact do you foresee with reintroduction of these bison? And which I which I feel could be also useful for other reintroductions and discussions that's going on. So the reintroduction project itself is is run by Parks Canada and I wasn't involved in that aspect. I know though there's benefits to bringing a large grazer onto the landscape, bison are an important part of that ecosystem, and it's going to impact the ecosystem and all of the species there. So it's kind of just a really simple restoration activity, Mm -hmm. doing restoration by bringing a species back. So that's an important part. In terms of the bison study, it it was a study conducted by Stony Nakoda knowledge holders and technicians who worked with elders to understand culturally what the bison's role is on that landscape to go and observe the reintroduction zone and using knowledge the elders shared to try and identify the impact of those bison. And it included impacts on medicine and included impacts on the landscape, on other species that were there. And what was crucial in that study, and and it was shared in the report by the Stony Nakoda authors, is the sense that it was not just about reintroducing bison to the landscape, it allowed the Stony Nakoda people Mm -hmm. to be reintroduced to the landscape, to be reconnected to that landscape. 
and the, the technicians, the riders who went into the backcountry were remarkably open and, and sharing in just the power of that reconnection, that it was at a spiritual level. It was at a level that they saw impact on their whole community. Oh, wow. And this is a, a nation that has bison and they were able to bring kids out to be involved in in harvesting and just really that connection is so important. I just think that the the lesson as a non-Indigenous scholar and somebody who works with parks and protected areas decision makers is, is just seeing those relationships mm-hmm. uh, and the depth of connection that can happen when you're doing something that you might think is just about an animal on the landscape. It's, it's woven in with Indigenous knowledge systems and it's woven to how we experience it. Mm-hmm. I, I think of bison differently. Wow. So I think the recommendations really are to respect those relationships, to respect how to work well with other knowledge systems. Uh, the number one recommendation or one of the top ones is, is the importance of ceremony, mm-hmm. including biologists, park managers, elders, Stony Nakoda technicians in that ceremony. And then as the bison herd grows, there's also recommendations about continuing to involve Indigenous mm-hmm. knowledge in that herd management. So decisions if the herd at some point needs to be harvested. Mm -hmm. Looking at it not just through a biological perspective, which might just be reductive or look at certain parts, also looking at it from an Indigenous perspective, which is more holistic Mm -hmm. and and asking for that help. I think is again a real lesson, a real recommendation of that paper is that it's, it's only beneficial to work together, just like, you know, talking about different disabilities it's about us seeing nature in a different way. It's it's appreciative. It's additive. It's it's there's not a downside to working with indigenous people because it enriches our understanding of biodiversity and it helps us model social diversity. Absolutely, yeah, I completely agree with you. This whole idea of like two-eyed seeing in some way, right? Like seeing the world with the indigenous lens and how we can use those kind of insights into the scientific ways of conserving and protecting the nature and also don't like trying to like bring a little more into some of the collaborations and partnership discussions that you mentioned. So collaboration and partnerships are often very crucial in achieving successful conservation outcomes. And you mentioned about like businesses and local communities. Could you share maybe an example of a successful collaboration which involved maybe multiple stakeholders like government agencies, indigenous communities, non-profit organizations, together in management of protected areas in Canada? It's difficult to pick just one example because conservation is a collaborative act. It has to be. There's no one agency that can do everything on its own. There's no one person who can do everything on its own. The funders for the CIPSL Collective is the Canadian Parks Council. They're, mm-hmm. they're probably the example that I'll, I'll use as a good one is for over 60 years. 60. Yeah, 60 okay. years. The parks agencies from Canada's federal, provincial, and territorial governments have convened to basically have a council to talk about their their shared problems. And then they would set up working groups so that they could come up with strategies that they could all benefit from. So a climate change working group or a working group on, group on youth engagement, the leadership programs that we work on and the research network. It's such an exciting example of collaboration because all of those members have different needs, different contexts. You've got Parks Canada, which is massive and across the continent, and Prince Edward Island, which is a very small park organization. But they've created a space where they can be empathetic, where they can listen to each other, and they can appreciate that everybody in that room has something to offer each other. Mm-hmm. And we recently completed a, a research project on how this council responded uh, by creating a a jurisdictional roundtable during COVID. So they actually demonstrated this value of collaboration by meeting when the pandemic started, they all had to react to public health directives and they would share things like, oh, how are you closing that facility? How are you reopening that facility? What type of signage are you using? Mm -hmm. How are you educating people? What's happening with the wildlife there? How do you manage the garbage there? And, and it was just this really great example of them uplifting each other and just saying, look, we can do better if we work together. We don't have to all reinvent the wheel. We can learn from our successes. So, so I turn to them as an example because there's such a great Canadian context. Mm-hmm. You've got territories, provinces, and a federal government working with very different scales, but finding common ground. 
and finding a way to say, hey, if we share, if we share the load, we can do more mm-hmm. with each other. So so it's quite an exciting example of collaboration. Oh, wow. And and then it goes broader to the entire conservation community. Sipsil itself, we've recently changed our name to not just be about parks. We want to also talk to protected areas and conserved areas and say, that's actually a continuum of area-based conservation that has, again, similar challenges. We say we all have the same problems. We just call them different things. That's true. <laughs> so so trying to create that collaboration is really what the Sipsil Collective is trying to do. So we can say, I may work in a park, but what can I learn from a biosphere reserve? Mm-hmm. What can that biosphere reserve learn from a private conservation area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sharing knowledge and, and building each other up. That's that's really interesting, Don. And it must be a hard task too, right? Like for this co-learning or like knowledge sharing thing. Is there like a platform or like a ways in which people usually do that? Yeah. So the program is is built on a platform. So sipsil.ca. People are able to go and create a, an account okay. and share information. And then we also host webinar series where we get these members of this broad community to share what's happening. We bring researchers in so we can share their work. Fantastic. And then we also have an annual research e-summit, so um, an online, just a sharing summit where we get people to be able to present. It's a great space for students working on projects. And we also encourage practitioners to bring problems so that the research community can think of things they can work on that actually will have a practical outcome. So, yeah, it's a really it's really designed to build that space, make the connections, and then a lot of those connections move on without us because they've connected with each other. Oh, that's that's fantastic, Don. And yeah, with our, all our discussions about parks and protected area, it's very important that we bring this very recent devastating wildfires that's like, you know, wrecking havoc all across Canada. It's evident that several large protected areas have been affected by the wildfires. So in your opinion, what is the most significant concern for parks in relation to these ongoing fires and what are some of the management strategies that's being employed to address this issue? Yeah, it's it's a good question because on one hand, fire is a natural process. And if, if a protected area is large enough and if it's a protected area with fire as one of its natural processes, then that fire should be okay and it should be something mm-hmm. that a protected area can handle. But of course, a lot of protected areas aren't big enough and these fires are massive and they're unusually destructive in some mm-hmm. cases. The biggest issues become public safety. Okay. So that's, you know, when you think of a place that has facilities, that has people in it, you see park agencies that really need to focus on how do we ensure the safety of people and how do those parks play a role in the broader public safety. And in the past, we've seen provincial and, and other parks become places where people get evacuated. So there's sort of a role in that larger system of disaster management. There's another piece of which is looking at post-disaster recovery. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of things happening where it becomes about restoring programs, restoring facilities. In some agencies, they depend on that revenue. It's something we saw in COVID, where Mm -hmm. parks needed visitors to fund programs to manage the parks and to do studies and research or to make sure we had facilities open for researchers. They were closed and so Mm -hmm. you couldn't do the work of parks. And these fires are similar if you can't if you can't build this, the things that support your work, what do you do? And then there's another piece that I think isn't necessarily spoken about enough, but we've certainly seen it in fires, colleagues who work in places like Waterton National Park. Mm-hmm. We see hurricanes hit their parks on the East Coast. People working in parks and protected areas have connections and relationships to those landscapes and those programs. And there's an impact on them that is, I think, unique. Mm-hmm. To people who are who are simply visitors, absolutely, yeah. Work. I work in it with a group of young parks Canada and other uh, young people in conservation on eco grief. Mm-hmm. Eco grief, yeah, in eco mm-hmm. grief. So ecological grief or ecological anxiety that, as a as an everyday person, is important to think about. How do people cope with climate anxiety mm-hmm. and, and ecological grief? But when you're working in conservation, you're on the front lines of so people working in these fire areas. Uh, I think we have to really think, how do we support them? How do Mm -hmm. we create systems? How do we understand what they need? How do we create a program that's compassionate to the fact that Mm -hmm. these places you've spent a career managing are suddenly so different that you don't identify them? Absolutely. I was involved in Kananaskis during the 2013 floods. 
where we saw facilities that took 25 years to build washed away. And so that becomes a sense of rebuilding a relationship and, and rebuilding things that, that you took for granted. So I think that's both a new body of work to look at, new research we need to do, and it's a way to support conservation in these times. And finally, Dawn, such incredible work, and you mentioned about so many things after the recording, I'm going to go look up and read more about it. But what motivates you and inspires you in your work in park management and conservation? And are there any particular experience or moments that kind of had a profound impact on your career and shaped the perspectives of your issues and things? I'm incredibly lucky to grow up in a place where I could work in parks, where I could recreate. Even now, living on the coast is wonderful. When I was a kid, my parents used to be avid campers and they decided instead of camping all the time, let's move out to the country. So that shaped me for sure. And even now I think of how can I, how can I try and make sure other people have those connections? I think probably the most profound way I can explain it is our, our youngest son, okay. we, we adopted him and he was two and a half and he'd never been in nature. He'd only kind of been in little backyards. And we lived in the wilderness and I took time off work and went down to the creek with him. He had never seen a creek before. Oh, wow. He'd never seen flowing water. And I sort of stood back to see what would happen. And he sort of looked at me and he looked at the creek and he looked at a rock. He looked at me and he looked at the creek and he looked at a rock and picked up the rock and he started throwing it. Wow. And it just lit up. He lit up and it wasn't like a kid lighting up as much as it was watching a human become part of nature. And, and I think of that it's moment. beautiful. Yeah, it was like, it was, it still today gives me chills. And for the entire time I was on parental leave, we'd go down to the creek and throw rocks. And the, the last day <laughs> we picked up a rock each, but we didn't throw it. So I still have the last rock and we're going to go throw <laughs> it someday. But, but it's just this sense of how much being a human needs us to be a part of nature. Mm -hmm. And, and it's something that he taught me. So that I can, I think I always carry that with me. And, and I see our work in biodiversity is really about reconnecting people to nature and other decisions will follow in a better way if we start there. So it's all kind of going back to the transformative learning, finding evidence that helps us understand good ways to connect people and learning from indigenous people who never stopped being connected. Absolutely. And, and just saying, how can they guide us to a place where we're all just little kids throwing rocks in the river and realizing that's what it takes to learn how to love life and, and all living things. Absolutely. That, this, is, this is so great, Dawn. From all the discussions that you're mentioning, this is something I was thinking. You uh, have likely in, interacted with many students and, you know, who is interested in pursuing careers in conservation and park management. So, and I'm pretty sure a lot of our audience are also students who are looking into professions and, you know, mm, academic jobs or like other non-academic jobs or even like graduate courses on conservation and park management. What advice would you give to aspiring professionals in the field and what skills and knowledge do you believe are essential for their success in it? I think I'll start with sort of the skills and knowledge and I think it's that interdisciplinary mind. If you can work in a space where you're okay, in fact excited about different ideas, different points of view, different knowledge systems. I think that's what we need to do a good job. And it's also what agencies are looking for. Mm -hmm. They're looking for new perspectives and new ideas. So that's kind of my simple skills answer is get good at working in these really complex spaces. But the advice I'd give is to get out on the land. If you can get out on the land with an indigenous guide, if you can participate mm -hmm. in appropriate and respectful and meaningful opportunities to learn from indigenous leaders, that's remarkable. Absolutely. But just getting out on the land so that the land can be something that you connect with, mm -hmm. I think is also really important. No matter what kind of research or, or scholarship or, or things you're developing, what you do, I think that experience and, and just reminding yourself that that's, that's the work you're doing and the place you care for. And then I think the other is just really something we're trying to do is reconnect academics and practitioners, just saying those aren't separate. Park mm -hmm. leaders don't have to work for a park agency. They can be academics and, and scholars. Yep. Same with conservation leaders. And you don't have to stay in one place. You can work and get your degree and spend some time working for an agency. They need the help. They're mm -hmm. short-staffed. Mm -hmm. They're looking for good people. So 
you know, not being afraid to say, hey, I'm going to try this work for a while. I'm going to contribute as a practitioner and that will make you a better scholar mm-hmm. and vice versa. I think there's practitioners who have a tremendous amount to offer if they would help us create some of that evidence, create a space to talk about it. So they have an opportunity as well to help us learn. So I think breaking down some of those ideas that a career looks just one way and say, maybe you can be working in a park or protected areas agency and then go on to work in academia and then take your scholarship into a practical space. I, I joke that I'm not just an academic practitioner. I kind of say I'm a parkademic. <laughs> you can work in parks and study parks and find this space that weaves them together. And, and I think that would help the conservation and biodiversity community if we had more people spending time with one foot in each world. That's, that's such a beautiful message, Dawn. And yeah, and I'm sure like a lot of students and the young professionals who are looking into career guidance will really benefit from that message. That's, that's truly remarkable. That's such a beautiful message, which actually brings us to one of our last questions, which is you're also an IBIOS member. And being an IBIOS member, what are some of the things that you are really excited about in UBC? I'm excited about IBIOS, just in general. <laughs> Biodiversity, embracing and celebrating the interdisciplinary nature of that. And I'm excited about seeing if I can contribute in that interdisciplinary conversation, in that, that space between ways of knowing. And it doesn't just magically happen that you have two eyes that you <laughs> both see. You need to do the work. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think for me, in the work I've been able to do has been bringing two perspectives together by creating a space between those ideas. So I think iBIOS will be a great place to pursue that kind of work. And I'm also excited to bring in the Canadian Parks Protected and Conserved Areas Network mm-hmm. and the Indigenous Protected and Conserved Areas Leaders because those places, they're real places with real biodiversity challenges and solutions and conversations and relationships that I think really are the kinds of things iBIOS is set up to celebrate, understand, and then to turn into knowledge and evidence that others can learn from. Mm-hmm. So I think that whole, it's like, a, it's like a big playground, a big laboratory that we can all look at and explore. And I think we'll find a very welcome reception <laughs> from the people managing those places if we can help them accomplish their goals and support their relationships and maybe do things better than they've been able to do. So I think it's going to be a really, a really incredible group to work with. That's, that's really good. Thank you so much, Don. And thank you so much for this wonderful discussion. I've learned so much about parks, protected areas in Canada and the role it plays in conservation. So thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been fun to talk about some of these things I haven't thought about for a long time. You've sparked some new ideas. I'm going to go write down some things too. So I, I really appreciate that you've created this space for talking about biodiversity in an interdisciplinary way and to share our stories. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in today. If you want to hear more about Biodiversity Speaks, you can follow us on our socials at iBios Program on Twitter and Instagram. This episode is hosted by me, Helena Jolly, and edited by Liam Reed and assisted by Emma Jerick Simard. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until we meet again, think about protected areas, management practices, and their significance, both globally and regionally. Thank you. <laughs>